Hello fellow time travelers, Tony Whit here. I need to apologize for a couple of things. Um, one of those things is the quality of this episode. Uh, we were mixing from three different sound sources on this episode, and as you'll hear during the recording, we did discover halfway through the recording that one of them was causing a problem. And it was causing a helicopter chopper effect. You might even hear a little bit of it in the finished product. But what we didn't realize when we restarted was that it also affected the second half of the show. And that our third source was gradually drifting out of sync with the other two. So the finished product might be softer in some parts, might be louder in some parts. I apologize for that. I did the best I could. The second thing I need to apologize for is the fact that we will not be releasing a YouTube video with this episode, simply because we've had so much trouble with YouTube uh, on the last episode, The Rescue, which still has not been posted to YouTube yet, regarding copyright uh, strikes, or rather copyright warnings. Don't worry, the channel's not in danger of being shut down anytime soon, but uh, they seem to think that a few silent clips in the episode constitutes copyright violation. So I've been fighting with them for the last two weeks over this. So until we get that episode resolved, I probably will not be putting any new YouTube videos up for the time being. So the only way you'll get to enjoy this podcast is as a podcast. And I hope you're doing so. And I hope you will indeed comment and write to us because that's the only way we can give you a free copy of the Doctor Who novelization, if you do so. So, on to the finished episode, such as it is, and uh, enjoy! Time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the Herculean task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Get it? Hercules, Romans, yeah. yeah, yeah. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have our usual three person discussion panel, including our so called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's none other than Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, it's me again. I'm here. Yes, he's here. (laughs) And finally, we have our novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books, and this time around it's the wise and wonderful Alison Fitch Safried. Hello, Alison. Afternoon. Afternoon. Or late evening, evening, whatever. Well, it's potato, not morning. Potato. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Staccato tomato. We have to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Indeed, yes. Yeah. Yes. This time, we're having our... alliteration. Yes. This time, we're having our first encounter with a brand new author, Donald Cotton, discussing his novelization of the 11th Doctor Who story, The Romans. Without further ado, here's some fast facts. Doctor Who the Romans, adapted by Donald Cotton from the script by Dennis Spooner that aired from 1665 to 2665, published by Target Books in 1987. As of this recording in June of 2017, this title is currently out of print, 128 pages. 
By the way, people at home, if you hear some weird noise in the background, weirder than usual, it's because it is June in, of 2017 in Chicago, and it's swelteringly hot, but we're in Danny's lovely bedroom with his lovely AC, and that's what you're going to hear in the background, so, yes. This one is a weird one, both in terms of the televised story and the novel. In 1965... As Wikipedia tells us, and Dalton, you've probably heard most of this already because yeah. you read the Dal the Wikipedia article. <laughs> yeah. I would love to read the Wikipedia entry on Dalton. Yeah. <laughs> In 1965, the production team decided to add a dose of humor to the show, especially since William Hartnell had something of a background in comedy and always wanted to do more comedic business as part of it. So Dennis Spooner who had just taken over from David Whitaker as script editor for the second season, wrote the script. The televised version has lots of comic touches that were not appreciated by audiences at the time. In fact, it got really low audience appreciation. Really? Yeah, people did not like the hmm. story. Hmm. Ever since then, it's gotten a reputation as being one of the best Carpool stories. Not yeah. the best, because that's like the Aztecs. Yeah. But it's... Yeah. And the subplots with Ian and Barbara are actually much darker on screen than they are in the book, and they create a contrast to the funnier stuff that's going on on screen, including the poisoning of a Roman slave played for laughs, believe it or not. I believe it, yeah. having read this. I believe it pretty easily. Yeah, I'll have to show you that scene later because it's just bizarre. Dennis Spooner was said to be a wickedly funny man, emphasis on the wicked, yeah. And this story is actually a lot of fun to watch. Now, fast forward to 1987. Show on television is getting shorter and shorter seasons, meaning there are fewer new stories for them to novelize, which means the target range is raiding the back catalog to finally fill in the gaps, which is why almost all of the Hartnell novels we've read, with the exception of two so far, have been published in the 80s. Yeah. That's exactly why that happens. By 1986, Spooner was already gone. But his friend and colleague, Donald Cotton, was still very much alive, at least until 1999, and he had already novelized his own stories that were produced later in the Hartnell era, uh, The Myth Makers and The Gunfighters. Yes, we will be getting two more books from this man before we're done. Since those books were well-received, especially since both of them take similar risks with the story by presenting them as first-person narratives, Cotton was persuaded to novelize a story that he himself did not write, and the rest is history. Roman history, <laughs> Yes. Table slap. Yes. And then the motorcycle ruins it all. This is the only one of Cotton's books, however, that was not well-received by everybody. If you read fan reviews from the time, some of them say, yeah, this is funny and all, but it's not a Doctor Who book. Hmm. Hmm. They're, they become that much of a purist at that point. Oh, dude. And people I, writing it in fan magazine? Yeah. Hmm. And uh, some people had trouble with the epistolary form because this is still the only epistolary Doctor Who novel to date. Hmm. Um, from the novelizations, I should say. Some of the jokes have also caused controversy. As a matter of fact, my uh, dear friend Trey Corte, who may soon be joining us on this podcast at one point as an expert fan, so we'll do that at some point, asked us to address whether there's a Holocaust joke. 
there's a joke yeah. about a holocaust, but yeah. it's not the holocaust. Yes. It's not the Jewish holocaust. It's, in fact, the heating system yeah. that the Romans used to bring lava springs, heat from lava springs up, and there's a passing reference to it. Ian thinks he's misheard it because he's never heard the term before, but Barbara would know it. Except there's very little Barbara in this book. Yeah. So, Trey, just so you know, it's not necessarily a Holocaust joke. It's a joke about a Holocaust. But of course it is. 1965 and 1987. Of course it's a Holocaust joke. It's just not a joke about people uh, dying. Yeah. It's a joke about him misunderstanding. But Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. It's, it's at least that. Um, oops. The Oh, no. The pages are out of order. Oh, they're, they're <laughs> thank you. Uh, Dalton Hughes just turned the page over for me to remind me that it was double-sided. It's not a postmodern novel from about 20 years ago designed to be shuffleable so you can read it in any order. Oh. I thought maybe you were trying something very avant-garde like that. No, but no. Now I'm mixing and matching avant-garde and postmodern. Are you talking about so House of Leaves? I don't remember what it's called. I haven't read because it. Because House of Leaves can't be read that way, but it probably could be. No, it's not that. It's not House of Leaves. No. Okay. Donald Cotton. <laughs> We're still talking about Donald <laughs> Cotton. He himself is pretty fascinating, especially when you consider that something he led, he led, something he created led indirectly to Austin Powers. Hmm. In 1966, <laughs> he helped co-create a show called Adam Adamant. I think that's how it's pronounced. Adam Adamant Lives, which is about an Edwardian-era adventurer frozen in a block of ice by his enemies in 1902 and revived in the 60s. Uh. Yeah, that sounds familiar. It lasted for about two seasons. It influenced and then was replaced by The Avengers, which was made by ITV, and then was used for the inspiration for the Austin Powers concept. Except there, of course, it's a guy in the 60s who gets frozen and revived in the 90s. The show was often called What Doctor Who Did Next, because the executive producer and producer of Doctor Who, including Verity Lambert, the very first producer, after leaving that show, went on to do this one. So it's considered kind of, you know, the next step in Doctor Who, even though there's no time travel in it, except for somebody who, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So let's read the blurb, shall we? Because you're going to find something interesting about this book. The blurb is written by somebody who obviously has neither seen the televised version nor read this story, <laughs> read the novel. And the novel Not reads like it was read it? by somebody who never saw the televised version. Yeah. The TARDIS crew members have taken a break from their adventures and are enjoying a well-deserved rest in a luxury villa on the outskirts of Imperial Rome. But in the gory grandeur that is Rome, things don't stay quiet for long. Oh no. If the time travelers can save themselves from being sold as slaves, assassinated by classical hitmen, poisoned by the evil Locusta, no, she's not evil, thrown to the lions, maimed in the arena, and drowned in a shipwreck, they still have to face the diabolical might of the mad Emperor Nero. As if that isn't enough, they also discover that although Rome wasn't built in a day, it was burnt down in considerably less time. <sighs> I, I actually kind of hate this blurb because it does not sell this book well. No. no. Can we discuss the Doctor's many chins in this illustration? We can. In fact, I want us to. Depending on how you count, I'd say at least three, but you could take it up to five. <laughs> but here's the reason why. That is an artistic rendering of an actual 
um, publicity shot of Hartnell from the first season. But he's looking down at the camera from mm-hmm. above, so it's like... So he's got this whole elephant neck going on, and that's that explains the angle of his head and all that. And it may just explain those chins. But it's so lovingly rendered. Like, you don't have yeah. to put in all the chins. And yet they're there mm-hmm. to be marveled Painted upon and counted. Perhaps by yeah. someone who hated him a lot. Possibly. It's not a very flattering Hartnell photo, and that they decided to use that as their photo reference for this episode is kind of weird. Yeah. I guess they did that rather than uh, trying to pay the actor who played Nero, because that's supposedly Nero (laughs) there, and there are a couple problems with it. One, that's not the actor who played him, and two, the actor who played him at the time, I think, was in his 50s, and Nero died at the age of 30. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. A few problems there. Otherwise, it's a perfectly serviceable um, cover. But like you said, like the blurb, it's not selling it at all. No, no, no. No. You would not think that this book is in between those covers. You would judge it harshly by its cover. You would indeed. And there's so much going on in this book that we might as well just jump right in because, holy cow, I had trouble finishing this. In fact, I got finished last night. And the reason why was because, one, I had that trip to Kansas City in between, and two... I wanted to savor it. I wanted to take my time with it, and I had to take my time with it because, Dalton, what did you say earlier? You said that it's just... It's just really dense. It's really, really, really dense. Even though it's 93 pages, it's a lot of words. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. I had There were so many passages that I had to go back and reread right. to make sure that I got everything that was there. Um, a lot of wordplay. A lot of... Oh, yeah. Just, yeah. It's, it's really wordy. <laughs> yes, but in a, in a good way. Yeah, in a good way. In a totally good way. But See, it's... I thought The Rescue, the last one by Ian Martyr, was much more self-indulgently dense. Really? Linguistically, yeah. Okay. Whereas this one, it's dense, but it's you know kind of very light-footed wordplay. Well, yeah. except when it's heavy-handed wordplay, as opposed to such detailed crochet exposition and description of scenery. Mm-hmm. I thought it, I yeah. thought it actually read really quickly and easily. Yeah, there's actually very little actual description going on. Yeah. If anything, it's the characters telling us, hey, this happened to us. It's just unfortunate that it's so few of the characters because we get one letter from Babs. And it's, it's funny, a, though. It's a funny it's letter. Funny, but... but it's arguably the least funny of all of them. Yeah, yeah. why would you say so? You know, this is a problem that Charles Dickens had with all the good women being incredibly boring. Mm-hmm. It's only the villainesses who are really entertaining and have a lot of humor and personality. Yes, yeah, like Papaya. I don't know if that's what's going on here, if Cotton just didn't know how to write, like, funny, whatever he thought woman's voice should be, mm-hmm. or that he just didn't see that in that character. Yeah. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's a generalized gender thing or he just didn't know how she would be funny. Yeah. And in fact I can't even answer that because my memory of the Mythmakers and Gunfighters um is so far away from me now that I can't really address whether or not he handles Vicky well in Mythmakers or whether he does Dodo well. And that's that's the name of the character, by the way. <laughs> uh Dodo well in uh the Gunfighters. 
Which he describes shame. Vicky with a lot of humor, and mm-hmm. her, you know, the doctor, you know, poo-pooing how she's so hysterical and screaming all the time yeah. about things like rats crawling around and that sort of <laughs> yes. thing, being set on uh, fire. So, the guards being killed in front of her. We can yeah. do funny descriptions, yes, of Which that, is... where it's clearly it's not at her expense, it's at the humor at the doctor's expense, mm-hmm. but he just doesn't know how to do funny Barbara. Yeah. And this, I, you would think maybe it's the darkness of the constant rape peril, but he does yeah. funny Ian Chesterton, who's at constant murder and torture peril. So yeah, <laughs> obviously you can do true. quite dark humor yeah. with people being in constant danger of life and limb. But yeah, just one piece, the least funny one. He just didn't seem comfortable with the character's no. voice somehow. But several of them have similar voices. Yeah, so they all sound like, the same. Yeah, so especially with some of the, when it gets to alliteration, like I would argue that only the doctor should do that or only Ian should do that. So having two or three people do that. So it's not a challenge of doing, you know, a fifth or sixth voice. It's yeah. just he doesn't quite know what to do with her, it seems like, but feels obliged to have something from her perspective. And I think that's yeah. what it is, because we don't get anything from Vicky's perspective yeah. at all, which is a shame because, well, uh, I really shouldn't jump directly into how little this printed version resembles the story it's based on. Needless to say, Vicky does not act like this in the televised version. She's not a screamer. We find that out fairly quickly. Um, she, do- <laughs> she does do the thing with Lacusta, but in a different way. I was just watching the scene last night, and she's walking along with the doctor, and she says, Oh, by the way, I may have poisoned Nero. And he says, oh, that's wonder- wonderful, my dear. What? <laughs> and she says, yes, I met the, I met the uh, palace poisoner, and she was sending um, a goblet of wine along to a slave girl. And I didn't want the slave girl to be poisoned, so I switched the goblets. And he said, oh, my dear, we've got to, we've got to save him. You know, well, it's very different here. Yeah. Because they don't know that Vicky is with the doctor or Maximilian or Maximus or Petrullian or whatever yeah. he's... Whatever name he's going by. Exactly. So it's leading to a much funnier scene in the book, actually. Yeah. Yeah, but there's very little resemblance. Vicky does not scream at any point <laughs> in the televised version. She's something of a delight, in fact. And it's like, oh, that's nice. She's not a delight on the... Mm-hmm. She seems like she's constantly harping about, oh, there were rats in my bed. There were scorpions on my she shoe. Is, but it could easily have made her seem completely hysterical, and it seems more like she's reacting more understandably, while the doctor just has no idea, no understanding of what's going on around him. So it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, that's true. And, of course, we got, we have to take into account that this entire book could be a set of unreliable narrators telling the story from their own perspective, of making course. themselves feel, sound better. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Always. So self-aggrandizing in this book. Yeah. It's so ridiculous, but fun absolutely fun well it really lets you kind of it explains how things could have been in some of the other stories mm-hmm. it gives you insight into some of his thought processes it's like okay well once you know that it's like all right well this explains a lot this explains a <laughs> lot so he honestly doesn't get it no 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 which is lovely <laughs> which is fantastic <laughs> because, yeah because everyone else is like shitting their pants pretty much. He's <laughs> yeah. just like, yeah, this it's is fantastic. Yeah. This is great. Let's it's do this. Great. Well, um, even Ian, even Ian is kind of getting into it. He's like, well, headmaster, you'll never believe what happened. Right. I'm oaring on a ship. <laughs> I'm oaring myself out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, that would be a very cotton esque pun. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, a yes. little too close to the bone, though. No, uh, no, he, he would do it if he thought of it. He probably would. <laughs> it yeah. just didn't. It didn't occur to him. Because there's some just lovely, as we said, wordplay here. It's just fantastic, especially the first time we hear from Ian. He says, "Your science master has been trapped by history, and your history master snared by science." Yes, <laughs> I love that. Yes, and I asked before what is former key, also science, and now I know. Yeah. She's been two or three times here. She got it Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Which has been useful in some of the other stories. Oh yeah, but it doesn't come up in this. She not really. really no, no. In fact, and I think that may be why Cotton doesn't do much with her, because he gets rid of the scenes where she has some of her funniest lines, which is really unfortunate. There's this lo- lovely scene where she and Ian are at the villa by themselves, and he says, "Oh, this wine's awfully hot, and maybe we need some ice. Do we have any?" And she's on a couch, and she says, "Yes, there's some in the fridge." <laughs> And then she starts laughing at him when he actually starts going towards the kitchen. And she's like, you actually went? And it's funny. And it's before the slavers get there. And she actually does hit him on the head with um, a a wine jug and knocks him out. (laughs) Which he knows about, amazingly. I don't know how. but, But yeah, there's not, apart from getting chased by Nero... There's not a lot she gets to do in this story. Mm -mm. But what she gets to do is kind of fun. It's just there's no way to reproduce that in letters, I guess. She's just in a... I always mix up Benny Hinn and Benny Hill. She's she's in a Benny Hill montage. She's not being slain in the spirit, but she's being comedically chased around by a lecherous old man. That's exactly it. The the humor in the televised version is exactly that. And it's broad. much more at her expense, and Vicky screaming is at Vicky's expense. I thought. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like haha, she's probably going to be raped. What can you do? Yeah, exactly. Which is what they do with Ian as well. But. True. Yeah, every scene she's in, you expect Yakety Sacks to be playing in the background. Yeah. And yeah, it's very much like that. It's that same sort of broad British humor that you see in the Carry On films. It's a kind of broad British humor that I never get because on the one hand it's incredibly juvenile, on the other hand it's not appropriate for children. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't ever get what feels like sexual humor pitched to eight-year-olds. I'm not, I'm not sure how and why it exists. Yeah, it really obviously is I'm not strange. the audience. I thought we lost the recording for a minute, but we didn't. It just went into seat mode. Yeah, it's weird that, especially with a book like this, because you actually get that one joke that I found a little too close to the bone, where Nero says something along the lines of, they're so delightful, even up to the moment when they're killed, after I've had my way with them, and it's like, holy shit. Also, it brings us to the question of, right, can you do a comedy about Nero and not have it be incredibly tasteless? Yeah. Because there's really not objectively that much difference between doing a Nero comedy and say a Pol Pot comedy. Yeah. Like the Amin comedy. Oh god, yeah. The or the producers. But yeah, I, I'm right. convinced that mm-hmm. the difference is whether or not the people a particular despot would have killed would all be dead by now anyway. Yeah. And this was a long time ago. So this is what like <laughs> 60-ish or something, 60, the last 80. decade of Nero. Yeah. So so those people would all be dead the now anyway. 60s. But yeah, I, I actually wonder, all right, are they going to talk about like the persecution of Christians and him killing people for fun? Yep, they're definitely they going to go there. So They do. It's, and it's done for fun. Mm-hmm. Yes, in ways that, on the one hand, I didn't feel comfortable with. On the other hand, I never feel comfortable with humor about yeah. actual historical things like that as opposed to, I don't mm-hmm. know, 
Emperor so and so from outer space or something behaving yeah. in a similar way. And I'm wondering if that's why Trey, my friend Trey, had so much trouble with the uh, Holocaust joke. But that's a more modern joke. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And I don't think it was meant that way in the book, but it certainly could be taken that way. Whereas the jokes about Christians, oh god, yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, I need to, I, that reminds me, I need to ask Maximus if he's Christian. Well, he went to like. Ex- yeah. Really excruciating detail of, haha, the lions are so tired of eating Christians. I know, I'll roast them. Like, <laughs> right. Holy hell, this is gruesome and dark. Yes, it is. That explicit detail. But like, this is a thing that actually happened. Yes, and, and none of it is in the Talvise version. It, I will say, hmm. I don't want to philosophize on whether or not you can ever do humor like that responsibly. I'll say it threw me out of what's otherwise a very lighthearted story. Mm-hmm. Think, oh, now let's think about actual people's death and suffering and religious persecution. Yes. And introduce the, the dirge soundtrack here. Except so. the whole thing is. Whole I thing mean, is... from the very start, it's all about people's deaths. Yes, yes. Yeah. Maximus is killed on the roadside. Yes. And yeah. that kind of opens yes. the whole... Yes, it does, yes. Yeah. And it's just strange. Um, but we don't know that there was a portly assassin with former aspirations to the priesthood that I'd like to explore later, who <laughs> 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 went around whacking musicians who were Nero's rivals. Do we? Or is, that a thing? Yeah. is that a thing that that it's not that Nero the... did had his musical rivals killed? I, it would not surprise me. I have not been able to find reference to that, but I have a feeling that Tacitus probably wrote something like that. Given, granted, they probably chose he probably. Donald Cotton probably chose the historian Tacitus as the best framing device for this because Tacitus was probably the most virulently anti-Nero historian who mm-hmm. was a contemporary. Because Tacitus, I think, was nine when the Great Fire happened. Mm-hmm. So he had some living memory of it, but he was just like, oh, that damn Nero. Yeah. And that's me, the me, concept we get. He killed a lot of people and burned down the city. I'm a whiny bunch. Yes, except he didn't. <laughs> except there's no way he could have. And yeah, we have to get into all that, too. Um, well, I'm saying he's Vicky in, in your story there. Wah, wah, yeah. wah. He's screaming and crying <laughs> the city is gone and everyone's exactly. dead. Why can't he just that's move on, man? Move past it. These are ant eggs. Why are we eating ant eggs? <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> that was a memorable detail. I like that. Yeah. There's so many memorable details in this, but it's just hilarious that Tacitus talks like a modern author, even to the point of referring to the book as a hot property and talking mm-hmm. about it being mm-hmm. made into a show. Yeah, <laughs> the Mad Max reference. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I actually like they just completely dispense with the pretense of historical veracity and had fun with it in a way that I found yes. enjoyable yeah. rather than. Trying to seem more learned than it was. Yeah, there's some weird anachronisms in it, but of course the biggest anachronism, and it's one we have to talk about because we have to talk about the seriousness of the narrative and how you present these things. The TARDIS translates. Yes? Yes. Translates the sign language? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as well as Latin and everything else, yeah. mm-hmm. which is fine. But apparently, it also translates writing. And if someone has written in that language, it stays in that language after they've left. So this journal of Ian Chesterton is perfectly legible to Tacitus. Yeah. Before modern vernacular English has been invented, or even I don't know, not before, but certainly it's not like in the same form. Years off. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and the doctor, whatever language he's writing in. Right. 
No. Same alphabet. <laughs> so, you know, Calfrey and Yeah, sure, it looks exactly like that. Well, in the latest episode of Doctor Who, Bill goes back to Roman times. And it's the first episode where she realizes the TARDIS is translating for me. Because uh-huh. she says, wait a minute, how is it you're speaking English? And he says, I'm not. What's English? I'm speaking Latin. And she says, I'm not speaking Latin. And he said, you just said that in Latin. <laughs> yeah so there's that Somewhere. friend yeah. of mine had a conversation like that with a bilingual child who was insisting in French no I don't speak French friend <laughs> <laughs> with English speaking parents in a French speaking country uh-huh. I think exactly. both a little older but in this case where we have it in print it's like wait are they writing it in Latin is the TARDIS making them write it in Latin mm-hmm. that, I mean chill, yeah, man. eventually yeah that's the thing. Eventually you get to that MST3K line, just to repeat to yourself, it's just a show. I should really just relax. Yeah, don't take it so serious. But it's hard to do with a book form of it. Especially an epistolary novel, because this means an epistolary novel is defined as the characters are writing their own accounts. But they're normally writing in the same language. They can't be here. So, yeah. With that, a multicultural, multilinguistic society. I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's the hill I'm fighting and dying on. Of all the hills of Rome, that's the hill. Germanic fusion languages that hadn't developed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I should love the uh, quip about it. Barbara. It sounds like barbarian. <laughs> yes, yes, it sounds like barbarian. Not like... dressed. <laughs> what else? What else did you like particularly? What else stood out to you as, oh, I'm can't believe this is in here. This is more a query. So you have a sub subreddit, correct? That's yes. still pristine? Which is still pristine. No right. one has responded to it. So I feel like Reddit is the appropriate forum to query what the doctor's political and socioeconomic philosophy is. Oh. At least it's presented in this book. So um, I, I keep losing my place, place around with PDFs. So I won't be able to read aloud. Okay. Um, so we have the girls going to town and go shopping. We're like, oh, this is going. We see where this is going. It's going to be like the first issue of Wonder Woman. Ever the Dame, Diana goes shopping or something. But then uh-huh. it actually turns out that the doctor is ranting about how Barbara is a victim of capitalism, which I actually found delightful. <laughs> yes, he, has to, yes. he has to wrest young, innocent Vicky away from this consumerist impulse yes. before it destroys her. Where is um, that? Let's it's, see if we can uh, find it's in the fr- doctor's very first, uh, first entry extract? on his. Yeah. Uh, Okay. On his uh, the second page. Yes, that's a, that's part of the reason why he says he has to take her. But he then, uh, but he uh, makes some kind of contemptuous remark about Ian's preoccupation with democracy and thinking it's a good thing. It'll probably turn into a republic. There it is. Yeah. It's page sixteen. And then, of course, at the end, we find out that the doctor accidentally put in <laughs> in motion the next human flowering of democracy that, oh, will, that will happen a few, yes. a few centuries later. Yes. No, I'm just curious. Um, what what sort of curmudgeonly um, socio-political philosophy do you think he's accumulated here? That he I hates democracy idea. and capitalism, yes. but he also hates cooperation and any sort of Does he say he hates cooperation? Mm, I think, I think the doctor one. could be considered a socialist, but a more an Orwellian socialist. He's far too that, cynical. Do you think? Because I, I think he believes in the spirit of humanity working together, but he also realizes that collectives take it a little too far, such as the Cybermen yeah. or the Daleks. Yeah. He knows, he has seen, or, or will see eventually, that happening. 
but yeah, I'd say you're right that he's he is definitely anti-capitalist with given how often he um steals from the rich and gives to the poor. <laughs> it's a very oh, entertaining yeah. rant. Yeah. Or in the new series, he steals from ATMs all the time. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like, this is how I get my spending money with yeah. a sonic screwdriver. <laughs> Why not? But yeah, it, it's weird that well, he's like, I have to get her away from Barbara because they spend all this money. It's ridiculous. Related to that, what do you think he expects from Nero? Because he seems kind of ignorant of Nero at first. Yeah. But then later, he has this whole entertaining agenda planned about different sort of civic architecture and waterworks projects and public utilities, and yes. he knows quite a bit about the time and era. Yes, he does. But at first, he doesn't seem to have the the idea that Hero is insane and a cold-eyed killer as well. Yeah, and... So it, I, I took that to mean he doesn't care. He actually doesn't have a problem with a despot. Yeah. I don't know if it's an internal inconsistency or if he's just supposed to be that unconcerned with Nero killing for entertainment yeah. when there's so much interesting material to discuss about upcoming um, public works projects. <laughs> that is odd. Well, I'm I... not sure if it's supposed to be a dark joke I'm saying or just an inconsistency with how much knowledge he has of Nero. It's hard to say. It it's, really is. As a dark joke, I think it kind of works. Yeah, yeah, because if we're talking about the fact that according to tradition, which is wrong... Nero burned down Rome specifically so that he could get rid of all the shitty old buildings and build new ones, including his beautiful palace. I like the suggestion that he was about to invent the brutalist school of architecture yeah. <laughs> 2,000 years early. That's horrible, featureless concrete. Yeah. <laughs> of course. And, and the whole idea of, oh, well, of course he didn't fiddle while Rome burned because it wasn't invented yet. <laughs> he used the lyre instead. Naturally. Yeah. And and yet we know historically that that wasn't the case, and the doctor actually does have a line where he seems to give some sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? He gives some sort of doubt about that. He says, well, it may or may not be true that this is the case. And the televised version? I swear to God, the televised version presents it as fact. He sees his plans burning, and he says, oh... The flame is so pretty. And the doctor realizes, oh, I may have just given him the idea to burn Rome. Oh, my God. Was it known then, though, that he had not actually burned Rome? It was not known by producers at the BBC, apparently. <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> and I think Dennis Spooner honestly didn't care because Dennis Spooner's like, you know, this, this is just going to be fun. We're going to make this it's just fun. just silly. We'll just kill silly. a slave on screen and have him die comically and... Yeah. Yeah. Well, well won't be the last. I think that would I be guess, a good guess. And some mm -hmm. something to uh, to keep in mind with the doctor is when in Rome. Mm -hmm. You did that on purpose, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> great relish and but, but it's true. Like yeah. I mean, he even brings up the fact that the doctor may be altering history without knowing it, while still thinking that he's not altering history. Yeah. So he's kind of like hands off when dealing with Nero, but also, like, you have all these deaths in your wake yes. happening because of this bumbling assassin. Yes. And then the televised version, he gives Vicky the rough side of his tongue and says, well, we can't change history. Right. We can't let Nero be poisoned no matter what he does. We've got to save, we've got to save him. And she says, well, what about the slave girl? And it's like, you know, the hell with the slave girl. He doesn't say that. Right. But it might as well be. Um, but it also brings up the idea of, like, if you are in the past, your actions may be the actual actions that 
cause history to happen the way it happens. Right. And so paradox has become yes. Yeah, and the televised version presents it very much as if the doctor was directly responsible for the burning of Rome. Yeah. Yeah. Here, uh, not so much, but it's I still kind thought of. Thought it was pretty strong. Really? Yeah. Okay. He drops the burning documents down the sewer where there's a methane <laughs> pocket. Yes. Yeah. No, he no, yes. he totally starts the fire. I love that. I love that. He starts part. it burning. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> I thought that was very funny. <laughs> yes. That was one of the parts where I just laughed out loud because I'd forgotten all about it yeah. because that character. The asked, script says he does it. He did it, doesn't it? Uh, does it? Oh, I will inspect. It's kind of difficult to read that postscript because. Oh, because Tacitus is, <laughs> as he is in real life, not the most uh, accessible of writers. We have to set against this, however, the fact that he first of all introduced the concept of atonal composition to Roman music, <laughs> then released several lines into the streets of Rome, and finally accidentally set fire to that city. And these matters can hardly be overlooked, especially since Nero was subsequently blamed for all yeah. of them. Oh. Proclaimed a public enemy by the Senate and driven to his death, which in retrospect can only seem a very unfortunate <laughs> misunderstanding. Yes. You know and then what? he suggests it be sealed until 1987. Yes, which of course it gets unsealed. I, I kind of, I, I glossed over that. I completely missed that. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, that must be it. Which is weird because I thought, I thought honestly that Tacitus was the main historian who blamed Nero for the fire. So, I not doing my due diligence on these things because the, <laughs> the author didn't i don't think they have a great burden on you to do so no yeah, i mean that that may just be artistic freedom. i actually yeah. all right sure yeah i actually did like they said well said um what's that movie tom cruise is a good nazi it's an oh, official title uh valkyrie they said we're not even going to try different kinds of German accents. They're all Brits with the occasional American. We're not even going to pretend. <laughs> so, you know, they're not even trying to pretend yeah, here. I mean, there yeah. are very overt modern references up through 1987. I, yes. I thought it worked with the spirit of it. They're not trying That's to true. Re rewrite Corvatus. And here. come to think of it, uh, yeah, even though they mentioned Corvatus. That was very funny. Corvatus Tardis. Corvatus Tardis. Yeah, so it yeah. actually works with the accent. <laughs> Like the Jersey Shore version. Covatus. Covatus. That would be more like, yeah, like Boston. More, more of the Southie. Yeah. Oh, that's. I think that's what threw me from Marky realizing. Marbles. Because Darn I was like, good. 1987? But that's our dating system, not the dating system they would have used yeah. in, the, in the time of Tacitus. In the time of Tacitus. But again, it's only 1,500 years off. Yeah, exactly. But still, again, you repeat to yourself, it's just a show. I should really just relax because this is just fun in some way. Well, you know, Tacitus would have written it in Latin and therefore when it was translated in 1987, they translated it to English. There I guess know. so. Or the TARDIS is translating <laughs> for, for us if we're, if we're considered travelers in it at this point. I yeah. don't know. God. So 1987, I, mixing up my film eras here, but... All right, so I feel like this is right before we have a sort of an onslaught of grim and gritty historical films. 
Possibly. And I'm trying to go through this mental roll of different grim and gritty historical films from the 90s, but it might be because in 1987 I would have been seven and not allowed to watch the really grim and gritty oh, historical films. So young. But I'm not sure. Oh God. Every time you mention 1979. You're just fetuses. <laughs> well, but what I'm saying is... All right, we're back. We had some technical difficulties there for a minute with our machine, whatever the our machine is. But now we're going to go back to Allison's point about gritty historical dramas from 1987, and I'm still wondering <laughs> what it is that you meant by that. <laughs> right. mm -hmm. So I'm trying to remember when, you know, film and television kind of shift back and forth between, you know, heights of comedy, and then suddenly everything is very dark. I think my brother-in-law thinks uh, his reference... Uh, first Batman movie of the 90 or 91. Oh, yeah, it's like a, yeah. a turn towards everything being grim and gritty for a while, yes. being a dark time for comedy, and then there was another era of comedy. So I'm thinking of uh, historical dramas. 1987 is, I think, I'm trying to recall historical films from the late 80s, a little too early for what my brother-in-law also refers to as my sister and I's death and dismemberment historical dramas. <laughs> you know, things like The Last of the Mohegans and other early oh, 90s things yeah. further on. So what I'm thinking of now from the last five years, or actually I guess seven or eight years, is Spartacus. Oh, yeah. I'm asking, could you actually do a TV episode this lighthearted about Nero now that we have been exposed to so much historical entertainment that shows sort of the the gritty uh, gruesomeness of yeah. actual violence of that era, could you do that without making it incredibly stylized and almost cartoonish? Like, do you almost have a choice between Spartacus yeah. or just complete, like, pantomime slapstick? History of the World Part One. Which yeah. I think they're going for just complete pantomime and slapstick. And I think that's it. Yeah. So. This, uh, in fact, I think there was an entry in the Carry On comedy series called Carry On Rome. And this very much seems to fit into that, even though I haven't seen that movie, because I'm sure our British listeners have, so you should comment and tell <laughs> us about it, because we love to hear comments. That would be yes. nice. Yes, yes, yes. But yeah. I think this will be a little harder to publish now, without it being either oh, more sure. absurd, or actually be a bit more researched, and quite frankly, not entertaining at all with the kind of story they're trying to tell. Yeah. And in fact, um, it be a little more off the wall. if you read the reviews at the time, it's a polarizing book, and it's even a polarizing book now, because when we get to Goodreads, which we'll be doing about a half an hour from now, just to warn you, um, Goodreads, yeah, it's either one star or it's five. Really? Yeah. And so it averages out to, and this is spoiler alert, it averages out to about 3.33, which is a point lower than The Rescue. But it's all because the, at least with the rescue, it's like in that three range, that sweet spot range. This book, you either love it or you hate it. Yeah. Speaking hmm. of Spartacus, yeah, I was referring to the um, <laughs> the stars uh, series of like I think around two thousand ten. The one that that poor guy died. Yes, yes, the star died the first season, which is by far the most explicit television I've of any kind I've ever seen. Right. I'm not referring to the sexy Kirk Douglas Spartacus. Um, which <laughs> Ian remake. brings which up. Which Ian brings up in the book. So yes, the question does. is: Is Ian in love with the headmaster? Mm, because wow. he refers to I think of you as my true friend ah. and then brings up Spartacus like two paragraphs later oh my so oh my. do we think he's oh just my. writing <laughs> do we think he's just writing to someone who might remember him 
and hopes that someday this letter might get to him in the future? Or is there something a little deeper and stronger in his heart? I very much doubt it. <laughs> I think it's this cotton cottoning on to the fact that Ian is usually the most underwritten character of all of them. The only other time we've gotten this much into Ian's head was in the Doctor Who and the Daleks novelization, which neither of you have read. Mm -hmm. But it's really, Danny has. And it's really quite awesome that it's told in a first-person point of view from Ian's point of view. And it really makes Ian a much more interesting character. This makes Ian a much more interesting character, but in a very different way. And possibly there is some homoeroticism there. Well, so he says early on, he makes, you know, the, the, the I don't remember the very amusing, um, mm -hmm. what's it, a diastic, the diastic chiasm, where he talks about how, the, <laughs> I swear I am not making this up, diastic chiasm, it's on Wikipedia. <laughs> um, well, he talks about how the history mistress has been led led into the wild blue yonder by science and right, the science right. teacher has been wandered off into history or something mm -hmm. but you headmaster probably you probably all think that we eloped and he of course dismisses yes. this out of hand you said before they sometimes have a flirtation it's not really yeah. evident here oh um, it is in the televised version okay well oh but in God. the book it is not so then he says several entries later the headmaster refers to him as you know I, I hope you don't mind I think of you as my true friend mm. by the way do you like gladiator movies <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes, I am reading a lot in, but I don't think it's complete, a complete invention on my part. Uh, probably not. In fact, I, I would say there's probably some argument for that. I don't know a lot about Donald Cotton's personal life. Um, however... It would probably be more of a joke at Ian's expense, I think, than a serious development of character. Oh, I think so, too. But, yeah. And I think he's probably doing the same thing that Ian Martyr does, which is trying to slip in as much as he can. Yeah. Because there's a lot that's slipped into this book. Oh my goodness! Some very adult references. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that. For example, yeah. that was my golden one. Was, okay. Do you like gladiator movies? What, <laughs> what off-color references? Well, stood out to you. Um, I'm having trouble recalling specifics right now. So if you have anything in mind. Um. Well, I can go into my notes. I noticed that Cotton seems to have the same lack of disregard about having Ian say "damnable," which is a good deal, a bit gentler than "goddamn," but still. You yeah. see that that some of that stuff's going on. Um, let me just look through my notes here now that I know that these are two-sided pages rather than one-sided. I love the fact that the doctor has gotten Ian's name wrong so often that he's even doubting whether his last name is his last name. <laughs> <laughs> it is hilarious. And it's a gloss on a joke in the televised version. Where the doctor says something about, well, see to it, Chesterfield. And Barbara says, Chesterton. And the doctor says, oh, my boy, she's calling you. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> but it's it's not in this version, obviously. There's so much that's not in this version. I thought, um, <laughs> Papaya is banging half the Praetorians was pretty entertaining. Yes, <laughs> that is not. Obviously, that's not in the televised version. The, the historical Popeye is It's not explicit. To, no, it's not. But She's just very concerned about personnel. Yeah. And morale. <laughs> well, when one of her appointments doesn't show up, she's like, oh, let me go get that other guy. Yes. He was he was nice last time. Let's get him. And the reason why her appointment doesn't show up is because he's been killed. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and she's more upset about the fact that she's missing out on his javelin. Yes. Or his asagai. <laughs> then 
<laughs> she is in the fact that the guy has been killed. Yeah, assassin. You know. I don't know. It's just Which actually kind of works for Roman Empress. Yeah, yeah, it does. And her little. They're high ho. Hi ho. About Such is life. Such is life. Hi ho. How can. Yes, this is the life of the poor, innocent Roman Empress. Hi ho. Even though she has this really strong working relationship with the poisoner in the palace. Yes, yes. Yes. And even talks about passing the chalice on cold yes. winter nights. <laughs> Our games of passing the chalice. We're so accustomed to this game, yes. Yes, we've done this so often that it's 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 our bad. Did I catch it correctly? Does the person that they poison evaporate into steam? Is that yes. right? So how does that play out on the episode on screen? Oh. I assume the technology was not good enough. What to... happens is the doctor saves Nero and says, don't drink that, it's been poisoned. And Nero who knows that Vicky is part of the doctor's party, has his arm around Vicky, and he says, oh, if I could only get my hands on the person who put this poison in my drink, and Vicky's like, glances at his hand, is like, mm -hmm. well, you do. Um, and then when they leave, Nero gives it to his aide and says, here, drink this. And the guy drinks it, and then looks at him and falls over, and Nero says, oh, he was right. And that Oh, that's the end of the scene. It's very different here, especially with Vicky doing the wink and saying, Vinny, Vinny, Vicky. Yes! 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 That might have been the highlight of the whole thing. Oh, I love that moment. I wish that had been on screen. It's almost as good as Vicky saying, you know, I may have poisoned Nero. I did like Vicky's whole apprenticeship. Yes! <laughs> you know, it was and the character of Lucrista. I did not see it coming that she was the assassin's mother. I didn't either. And I've read this book before. I picked up on it. And did like the really? second or third letter he wrote, I was like, Because obviously he was going to be someone, yeah. but I didn't think mm -hmm. that. Well, the weird thing about that assassin, that character... Oh, let me see if I can explain this. The character who tries to kill the doctor is a mute in the original. Okay. Yeah, and he gets thrown out the window and we never see him again. But the Doctor has walked into a conspiracy, which apparently this Ascaris is part of, and so Cotton has given Ascaris a lot more to do, even to the point of just, you know, making him basically the piss boy, to use the uh, imagery of uh, History of the World Part 1, um, that he can't catch a break. Which even totally the worked end. for me. Yes, yeah. his mother his sells every him down appearance the river. was delightful, yeah. I thought. Well, his mother sells him down the sewer, basically. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's hilarious that the Cotton has linked those two characters and made Locusta much more of a hag than she is on screen. Locusta doesn't come to a nice end on screen because Popea blames her for trying to poison the wrong person and has her taken away by the Praetorian Guard. So you figure, oh, she's been killed. Wow, yeah. Which is a shame, really. But here she lives to a ripe old age and is writing her memoirs, like, the poisoner remembers. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's got that late 80s pretentious memoir title to it, which I think is <laughs> brilliant. But yeah, she tries to make Vicky her, uh, her, her apprentice. So before there was X Factor, what what sort of musical contest show might there have been in 1987 that they were taking off when they referred to the show that Nero had better win, even if it requires him to assassinate the other contestants? I don't know that there was one in Britain, but here we had Star Search. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm wondering, British listeners, 
if you exist out there, because I don't know if you do. If you weren't completely put off by Tony's Scottish references two episodes ago. Oh, yeah, but that's all water under the bridge. Hawkeye. But, um... <laughs> that shuffling of papers you hear with another complaint being filed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, let us know, because I honestly don't know. I don't know that there was one. Yeah. It was very entertaining. Yeah, it, it is entertaining, as is, and I see you're looking at it. His ode to Barbara. An ode to Barbara. Yes, he anticipates ode. Jim Gaffigan routines by 20 years. <laughs> In praise of Barbara. Good. And Tempest Toss. Excellent. <laughs> I loved his comments on his own poetry. Of In course. parentheses and italics indicated they are whispered. Yes. It is, it is just hilarious, especially since all those other names that he trots out are not Roman names, and they're not <laughs> necessarily um, not English. They wouldn't have called them English at, the point, at that point. Londinium names, yeah. either. It's just so strange, that. But yeah, you, you, you just dive into this book, and you're like, there are anachronisms everywhere, and I don't give a damn. Yes. It's just embrace it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's exactly. that kind of a book. It really yeah. is that kind of the book, especially Ascaris, because Ascaris's um, idiom is modern day London, nineteen eighty, mm. circa nineteen eighty seven. He's like, oh, oh yes. my goody, and I've had it now. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm for the chop, and it's like that is hilarious. It causes dear mum, dear mum, <laughs> dear mum. Why did you name me after a parasitic worm? Yeah, <laughs> oh, yes. I wondered. No, I, I'm sorry that I didn't take notes of all the puns and quips that I went there through. There are so many. I took many. In fact, I can go through my notes and tell you some of them, some of the best ones. Um, in fact, I do have some questions in my notes that I want to address, if you don't mind the extra time. Um, one of them being, of all the TARDIS crew, it's somehow hardest to believe that Ian would keep a journal. Hmm. It's not a journal. It's uh, a letter to, to the right. headmaster. Yes. Yeah, which is hilarious in and of itself, and that he's an expert at the darts club, which means he's perfect with the javelin, <laughs> <laughs> which is just too funny. Um, yeah, stuff like that, and the fact that Cotton really is like, you know, I know teenagers are reading this book, but I really don't care. I'm going to use these puns that all use these wonderful wonderful vocab words you never hear anywhere else. Which I would argue he should have confined to just Ian or probably just the Doctor. Yes. He shouldn't have three or four different characters Agreed. doing it. Agreed. Because this is absolutely the sort of thing I aspire to write as a teenager. And really? I would have been over the moon to have had this book <laughs> at that time. In 1987 through roughly 2000. Yeah, I think I, I, think I read it much later. <laughs> much later in my... Uh, I probably read it in the late 90s, to be honest. I didn't read it when it came out. But, I mean, words like prurient, scurrility, amenuensis. The Doctor, you can see, trotting out words like that. But Ian has a few things like that, too. Uh, what else? And I'll cut out the... And it looks like it's doing perfectly fine now. So yeah. whatever that problem was, I will, I will fix the first part. Is this the second episode that Vicky appears in? Yeah, it's, it's her second, second story. And, and that's, that's something that's kind of sad, really, because Vicky is going to be is going to get a lot more attention from Donald Cotton in The Mythmakers, which is her last story. So he'll be writing the novelization of her last story. Um, she doesn't get a lot of attention here. She's is it just more busy. or less than the episode? 
Um, she gets a little more to do in the episode. Um, and you get a little more of her character because it's like, oh, by the way, I think I just poisoned Nero. <laughs> it's just sort of this very offhand tone and that whole thing of the laying on of hands and such. But yeah. Oh, it specifically says in my notes, ask Allison what she thinks of this doctor since he's much more of an asshole than in previous books. No, he's an asshole in all these books. Really? I think it's completely consistent with what I've... This is, this is the fourth one I've read. Mm-hmm. Started with Planet of Giant Dicks. And then... What is that book even called for real? Planet of Giant Yes. And I actually asked, is the doctor supposed to be dickish? And you assured me that he wasn't. He wasn't being dickish. And then... Um, the next one was also Dick's. It was uh, refresh my memory. Dalek invasion of Earth. Yes. Um, when I asked if the doctor was supposed to be not dickish but just outright misanthropic, <laughs> and then the last one, um, the escape, I asked if he was supposed to actually not care if Ian dies horribly in front of him so long as his coat is not armed. Right, and the answer is yeah. So by this time, I found it really entertaining. Actually, I thought that the uh, doctor's misanthropic tendencies were uh, more off-putting in the previous books, whereas here the jokes more it. To the I, yeah. I, I thought it worked a lot more comedically here mm-hmm. um, than before, where uh, he was almost off-putting as a protagonist. He wasn't quite the magnificent bastard; he was right. just a jerk. Whereas here, he's much more entertaining as a magnificent oh, bastard. Like the tropes. Yes, he is kinda. And I thought of Inspector Cluzo. Yeah, yeah, being attacked by Cato uh, and then later by Dreyfus. Yeah, just um, totally missing out. At every chance of impending doom. Just yeah. barely getting out of the way. It's like, yeah. well. Tries to save Ascaris and ends up put, putting the lions yeah. into the Coliseum. So, when one takes different kinds of personality tests, there's always some sort of axis on the line, along the lines of people oriented versus task oriented. And, you know, it's supposed to be properly feminine, <laughs> feminine to be people oriented, and I'm not. I'm always, like, mm-hmm. on the side of doesn't care if people live or die, which I think is unfair. Right. Anyway. I thought this was more of a humorous take on the doctor is task-oriented. He has an agenda. He needs to get through these 16 items with right. Nero. And I thought it was a much more consistent characterization of he is task-oriented. He's interested in the task-oriented. He's interested in the adventure as opposed to the doctor's an ass, yeah. which is what I got before. Yeah, so. I could see that. I, I, I do find also that they do play up his egomania a little bit to the point that, for instance, you get that whole thing with unreliable narration and something called dramatic irony, which I think you know about. Um, Dramatic irony occurs when you see something that the character doesn't. Yeah. Like that moment where the doctor hears um, Vicky mumbling something under her breath about senile dementia. Yes, but yes. Doesn't think it's very nice. yes. And it's like, this is brilliant. Yes. She's just met him and she's yes. like, senile dementia. Well, and they show in the, the <laughs> I think all the previous books, Barbara and Ian are grumbling at the, like the second, by the second page about mm-hmm. how they don't even bother, well, know why they bother to speak anymore. Or the doctor is just going to write off all their remarks and do whatever yes. he wants to on his own. But it's, it's kind of funny, but it's kind of a downer, and you wonder why they all hate each other so much and continue to travel together. I guess they're just yeah. stuck together. Where this was a lot more fun, I thought. Yeah, I agree. And the televised version also makes you realize kind of why they travel together, though. Here's the biggest change. There are many changes to the plot. The biggest change is this. In the televised version, 
The Doctor and Vicky go off to Rome. Barbara and Ian end up in Rome. They keep missing each other. Barbara and Ian eventually escape and make it back to the villa just before the Doctor and Vicky come back. And the Doctor says, oh my god, you've just been sitting here lying about going weary all this time? You're just lazy? Look at you. We need to get going. And they've just gotten back from these harrowing adventures. Here, they're all back together by the end in the most hilarious way. And it's like, when I read that, I was like, oh my lord, this doesn't happen on screen at all. I like this version, but I also like the televised version. That it's a bit like watching, it's a bit like reading The Shining by Stephen King, and then watching the excellent movie by Kubrick. It's like, they are not the same story. Same characters, same basic situations, not the same story at all. Hmm. Both brilliant in their own way. Yeah. But, yeah. It's like, whoa. Ascaris is not a character, basically. He's just not there. On the episode, you mean? Yeah, I mean, he has his little fight scene with the doctor where the doctor, actually, it's Vicky who ends up accidentally making him fall out the window. So he doesn't keep trying to get it up over and over? No. I thought it was great comic relief. I think it's hilarious. I think Cotton was like, oh, I like this character. Let's make him a proper character. Let's tie him to somebody else and let's do this properly. And it works really well. Um, <laughs> but in the televised version also, the Doctor quite ably fights his assassin off. Here, it's implied that the only reason the Doctor manages to fight him off is because he thinks that Ascaris is drunk. Actually, Ascaris is drunk. So there is that. So There's just so much, though, that it's so different, and yet it's so good. The last one we saw, uh, the Ian Martyr, uh, The Escape, which I actually really liked in many ways, mm-hmm. belabored a lot of description of physical spaces in a way that it seemed like he was describing for a comic artist or set designer. Yeah. Like it was instructions yeah. for someone who was going to be producing the visuals. And it's a different setting. It was an alien planet. He was trying mm-hmm. to establish scene. We all have a you know mental picture of what we think Rome would have looked like in the first century. But this was the opposite of that in terms of very breezy transitions, I thought, especially all the near misses. Oh, it's someone who looks like Barbara. Oh, it's someone who looks like Ian. Right. Without having to hit that nail on the head quite so many times. Mm-hmm. That was actually, in terms of the sequence of the series, I thought a nice yeah. breather, a break, or a change in tone and pace. And I think I know why Ian Martyr was doing that. Because the rescue doesn't have a lot going for it visually. Mm. So he's trying to world build on the page. In a way that I thought worked. It's belabored, but it is effective. It's just overly elaborate on some of the set pieces. Where it literally sounds like I said he's trying to describe this to an artist uh, who will produce this in some three-dimensional or two-dimensional way. Mm. And this was so quick and easy to read and breezy with the set pieces that after something that was so serious and of course having the knowledge from the four with the other one that the author actually died at the end. I thought it was a nice change of pace and worked really well. Yeah, absolutely. And you wouldn't, wanna have, you wouldn't want to have two of those in a row. No, mm-hmm. God, no. And the wordplay, like, impenetrable penetralia. Yes, yes. I love stuff oh, What like was that, that magnificent word that I'm not sure actually exists? Um, 
Irritabilia. Irritabilia. Oh my word, am I going to use this in conversation? Irritabilia. I love it. Is that something that he coined? Is there actually a noun? Irritabilia? Memorabilia? Irritabilia? I guess so. I mean, it works. I mean, there's the word impedimenta. Pour yourself a drink. Yeah. I'm going to lay out all the irritabilia (laughs) from my day. (laughs) And I love that, too. And I think, yeah. It's just fake Latin. Is that the joke? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. And there's a lot of that. I mean, it's like Nero saying, yeah, ask Juvenile how he's doing with the yes, 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 <laughs> He hates yes, that. Yes. And talking about well, Lacusa. But he didn't invent the word Juvenile. No, exactly. Or I mean, talking about Lacusa and saying, with, a friend, with her as a friend, one hardly needs an anima. And even the doctor gets in on it with the whole, oh, he made off with the loot. Yes. <laughs> I do yeah. like. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, that, that explains the joke. Yes, for like two paragraphs. For two paragraphs. Which would not have been understood in that sense. Oh, my God. It's just so fun. I do like the objective impassivity of Delos. It's like, look, it's nothing personal. They're going to pay my expenses. I have to off you. Right. Yes. I will try to be quick, but please hold still. Oh, that's <laughs> not personal. It's business. Yeah, that character of Delos is so much better in the book because on the screen he's just a foil for Ian and he helps him out and it's like uh, uh, just a boring character whereas here he's like oh you know I really can't stand you but it's nothing personal I just want to get out of here and only one of us can get out and since well I'm going to get out you need to die that's brilliant that works beautifully well carry on both Ben-Hur and what's that movie where the two prisoners are handcuffed together uh I don't know you know what I'm talking about no <laughs> you know that movie from more than 30 years ago where the two prisoners are handcuffed and it's a drama just I remember it's from 30 years ago doesn't mean I know it <laughs> even though I'm an no, ancient no it was alive then <laughs> it might involve Rod- Robert Redford I don't recall it's a drama it where two prisoners him. who don't like each other have to learn to work together I think it's from around this time period. Okay. I think that they are making fun of that because in, instead of learning to truly understand one another and rely on one another and trust one um, another, one was like, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm probably going to have to kill you. It's nothing personal. I've got an expenses oh. paid trip back home if I do it. It might be. This listeners. is highly, Google- <laughs> highly Googleable. I apologize for not doing so in advance. That's fine. Listeners, <laughs> you should let us know if you think this is um, indeed something that we need to know about yeah the relations between delos and ian are much warmer on screen than here but i love how they are on here and that ian says things like staccato tomato yes (laughs) and calls himself the stinks tutor which i had to think about for a minute well it almost seems like this whole time ian has been drunk along by the doctor Mm -hmm. and now he's just being dragged along by this other character. He's, yes. he's not in control at all. <laughs> no. And he's just like, no. All right. all right, okay. But he's so much more entertaining and talking about it here than he ever would have been on screen yeah. or even in the other books. Um, I apologize. They're making fun of the Defiant ones. It's 1958. The Defiant That's ones. much... I thought there was... I think there's an 83. I think yeah, I'd be wrong I think, about I that. Think right. but, I think you're right. Um... And I, I, I want to do just a few more of the best lines in this book, like uh, um, Popea trying to trying to threaten Lacusta and saying, you need to do this if you know it's good for you. <laughs> and Lacusta saying, knowing what was bad for people was, was what yes. made us yes. 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 Y
It's the second Monsters, Inc. movie. There's a poster on the wall. It says, auditions today. Do your worst. Exactly. Or I'm trying to I'm trying to cure my arthritis, and I'm taking a look at the side effects because who knows I might be able to use them for yes, poison. Yes. Doing my <laughs> like, worst that's is what brilliant. I did. Yes, that was that's very good. Well, once again, it's the evil women who are funny and have a lot of personality. It's a yeah. Dickens yeah. problem. Whereas Barbara and Vicky, it could be a lot worse, Except but it could be a lot better. There are two moments in that Barbara letter that I'm just mystified by. The one is the MS at the end. I, okay, I had no idea what that meant. I tried Googling it. I couldn't find it. It is M forward slash S. I thought it was Ms. It's not that. I could not find any sort of thing about sign-offs for letters. So some kind of abbreviation like RE for regarding. Yeah, I found something that said Master Slave, and I was like, that couldn't be it, could it? She's addressing him as the master to her slave because she is. And then there's this brilliant line which i cannot figure out for the life of me and by the way i've been an english teacher for what 20 all over 25 years now oh thank you ah. oh you shit you um and she says <laughs> he keeps inviting me back somehow i do i am fully cognizant of that separating septicemia of the so-called soul which invests your festering facade with the dropsical dross of all possible nostrils Yes, that's self-indulgent. Yes, that's Barbara talking to Nero, and I'm like, what the hell is she saying? Well, there? it was not consistent with how she spoke. No, well, no, none of it is, but it's like I really wanted to like it. That's where you're supposed to what is it, kill your babies in writing. Yeah. Take out the things you wrote that you think are really cute but don't actually work for that character. Yeah, and I think that probably would have helped. I actually would have preferred to have seen nothing of Barbara in this book than have that because that didn't ring true for me. Mm. Something else that doesn't ring true. Actually, no, it, it rings perfectly fine because they completely changed the arc of the Doctor's musical talents. Instead of writing this thing called thermodynamic functions, which sounds dreadful, and he thinks it's brilliant, the Doctor has no musical talent whatsoever. So when he has the dinner where he has to have the performance for Nero, he's, he talks about playing the sort of music that only those with the keenest sense of musical taste can actually hear. And then he proceeds to strum his lyre without hitting the strings. So it's very much an Emperor's New Clothes oh, yeah. drama. Mm. Which is brilliant on screen. It's brilliant. It doesn't happen at all here. No. I, I, I like that as a running gag. Yeah. Though, sort of like what's it, what's sort of Voyager, where the uh, Doctor meets um, other androids and other holograms who have created oh, yeah. a colony and are trying to create their own culture. But everything yeah. that they create is sort of a bad knockoff of what they call organic culture. Mm -hmm. uh, there's one thing that I thought was really funny from our piece, which was, you should therefore, I know, in all fairness, you should know, therefore know, in all fairness, it is useless for you to attempt to conceal your unsavory self beneath the symbol from of a sugar saver. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I like that variation on sugar daddy. Sugar saver. <laughs> the sexy dancing goat. Yes. I who also buys you diamonds. Who also buys you diamonds. Oh my god. It is just, yeah, there's just so much that's well, like, in here. It was a really funny quip and didn't want something to say. No, yeah. it's absolute. that's not Barbara. That's not Barbara at all. Um, and yet, 
I think that's why so many people say this isn't a Doctor Who book. It's a very pleasant beach book. It really is. Very entertaining. You keep saying that. (laughs) I'm glad you do, because you're right. This is the sort of thing that you would take along and be like, oh, this is hilarious. And I found myself resentful for the first time of the fact that I had to read this and take notes while Mm. doing it. Because I was like, I just want to read this. I just want to enjoy this. I don't want to stop every few seconds and dictate something into my phone, such as... um, the apostrophe after damn is there because technically it's damned, but the ED is missing. That's actually a note that I had wrote down to myself. It's like, At one really? point, isn't there a typo in the book where they actually type in locust instead of locust? Yes, there is. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there is. So there's a 1982 book called The Philippian Fragment that is an evangelical humor novel. <laughs> Stay with me here. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting such a confused look from John in here. It's actually really funny. So I threatened uh, last time we recorded you to, reread last the, time. Yes, to reread the New Testament in context um, so I could talk exclusively about the book of Romans in the New Testament the entire time. <laughs> I just did not have that level of dedication to the bit at the end. I'm, but, and I think we're all fine with <laughs> the, that. The Philippian yeah. Fragment is an evangelical humor novel. It's actually very funny. It's supposedly a recovered apocryphal um, uh, epistle from the second century. So, so like this. Like a hundred yes. years later, but okay. yeah, from the early church. And so one of the uh, premises that there's sort of a cantankerous elder in the church who keeps arranging to have the pastors. He doesn't like martyrs. So they start numbering them. So after the first one, <laughs> the next one is Secundus and then Tertius and then Quartus and then Quintus. And I was loaned this, or mentioned my brother-in-law several oh, times tonight. I was loaned this in around 1995 and I'm pretty sure I still have it okay. and at the time it was like the funniest thing I had ever read wow. I thought in terms of all its anachronistic humor mm-hmm. and so I do even though I had not read this before and don't have personal nostalgia for Doctor Who did have a, a great nostalgia for it for the kind of thing I found absolutely hilarious as a teenager <laughs> yeah I could see that me towards it so. I could absolutely see that um only cotton could get away with anachronisms like sawmills and puns like this this inverted coma. I missed that. Yeah. The British refer to quotation marks as inverted commas. Oh. <laughs> and Popeya says that you know she's very awake and she says that the only thing that brings an end to this inverted coma and I was oh. like that is, I looked at that I was like oh my lord. Very I would good. never have gotten that in 1987. One time when the doctor refers to them being on vacation, though, that seemed weirdly American to me. Yeah, and, and yeah, yeah, he does. And it's strange, too, because they never really tell you exactly why they're there. I thought they were broken down. They are, Well, they're not. Okay. Because, um, remember, I told you to remember the ending of the rescue. The TARDIS is on a literal cliffhanger, and it falls yep. off a cliff. Mm-hmm. It's at the bottom of a cliff, and it's yeah. covered with... And <coughs> it's weird that Ian's kind of checking up on it, and that it's been covered with leaves, because even as the Doctor points out, it can take off from any position. We're just... But the Doctor here characterizes it as laying, uh, taking a brief sabbatical while the heat is on, yeah. which seems to be a reference to the Time Lords coming mm. after him, which is nice, because it would be... I would be upset if he referred to himself as a Time Lord in first person. I'm not upset by him 
making oblique reference to he's on the run from something. So why should yeah. he not refer to himself that way at this point? It just seems so. It just seems so looking backward in in the way that Ian Martyr in um, Reign of Terror calls him the Time Lord constantly and refers to him having two hearts and all that. Is it yeah. before they're using that kind of language yeah, in the show? Yeah, long before. Like, um, at this point, 65, so four years. So how much of that kind of retconning is there in the books where they use knowledge that... Or from later episodes that wouldn't have been present in 65? In the Hartnell books, a lot. And yet we haven't seen that much. We haven't seen a ton so far, but I have a feeling we're Oh, God, yeah. When we get to... uh, uh, Let me think. When we get to the chase, and when we get to... Oh, when we get to the Daleks' master plan, which is actually two volumes set. Like, that better be the cat licking me under the table. Oh, that is the cat. <laughs> I'm a little frisky. Um, yeah, it's not me. Not this time. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, yes, uh, I'll take that out. Um, what was I saying? I like your Dalek master plan. <laughs> Dalek master plan, thank you. <laughs> when we get there, <coughs> we will hit... <laughs> An author named John Peel, who will put in um, continuity references from later, and it actually works. It works fine. There are other authors, such as Gary Russell, who I've actually met personally, and I've told him this to his face, and I felt bad about it ever since. That there's a book of his that I hated because of all the continuity references. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm so sorry, but I really hated this about your book, and it's like I don't even know why to this day I did that. I think I was just trying to show off for Gary Russell because otherwise I love Gary Russell. Gary, if you're listening to this, call me. Yeah, anyway. As the amateur, though, I did not... I don't have a problem with references to later continuity. And I have seen like a few of the Pertwee episodes and that I don't really remember them mm-hmm. because I, I saw them on black and white TV in the 80s. My cousin wouldn't explain to me who was doing what. <laughs> of course. So my, my knowledge of Doctor Who is entirely the new ones, starting with Eccleston and moving onwards. And I don't have a problem with these books from the 80s talking about thing, information that came from the 70s and 80s and applying them to the 60s episodes. Right. But that's because I'm, by definition, not a purist. I'm yeah. not invested in it. You start messing around with stuff with X-Men, then actually I'll, I'll oh, fight yeah. you. But, <laughs> but for this, it's... For the, for the casual user, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, and I think it works well for this book because this book ends up being so much more entertaining with Mad Max references and stuff yes, like yes, that. Yes, 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 yes. All right. Um, we'll tell you what. Let's go on to good read. Well, first of all, I want to ask if there's anything else that strikes you from the book, anything else you wanted to address that we did not get to. Uh, um, I liked the part about the Venus de Milo. Oh yes, the doctor just and how Papaya thinks that someone's it's a plot has it out for her because this statue got knocked over and the arms come off, and she's but... probably right about the plot. Yeah, because Papaya was constantly in danger, but that's because she was Empress. I thought yeah. it was kind of an eye roll at first, and then I thought it was very funny that she thought it was a personal affront. Right? Yeah, exactly. Because like, of course he broke the Venus. Yeah, it was like, oh, okay, yes, thank you for throwing it in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, wink, wink. Yes, yes. But then when they brought it back, it was yeah. like, okay. I'm going to say that as a person who has never seen this cast on screen, that as with uh, Planet of the Giants, I found the 
one-time guest stars, uh, entertaining <coughs> than the core cast. Okay, so that would be... Equal to or more entertaining than. So that would be like Tacitus, mm-hmm. Lacusta. Yeah, and the historical or pseudo-historical characters, yeah. Yeah. Because they can do anything, they can say anything, you don't have to be internally consistent with the characterization, they're dead, the estate will not sue. <laughs> and yeah. so it, yeah, I thought it had a lot of... The weakness, I thought, is that way too, far too many of the characters speak with the same comedic voice. Yeah. <clears throat> but... There is that. It was an entertaining enough voice, like I said, for a beach book, that wasn't a problem. For me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, then let's go on to final thought. Um, well, actually, we go to Goodreads first, don't we? Let's go to Goodreads first. As we always do... Let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, simply read the book, write a review on Goodreads, and then write a comment somewhere. Tell us what the doctor's socioeconomic philosophy is. Yeah, someone <laughs> needs to do that. crying out loud, or, or read it. Or even better, <laughs> tell us what M slash S means. That I'm too. desperate to know this. And not in the Craigslist sense. Yeah. It's a more innocent time. <laughs> you may just get your review read out loud here. You're like man for sloth is what people will Man for sloth, I'm yes. sure. <laughs> the average rating for this story out of five stars is 3.33, just a tad lower than the rescue. Here are some sample reviews. Ronald, who gives it three stars, says, I found this book in a box when I was cleaning in the garage. I'm not, I'm not sure why I saved the book, but I decided to give it a read. While I'm sure this Doctor Who adventure made for great TV, the book version of this adventure was a rather disorganized read. The story is told from discovered historical documents and diary entries. This taints the story drastically from one character's point of view to the other. Taints! Taints! I you, taints it! Taints it! It's unclean, tainted. Unclean, unclean. So, it's tainted. It's got a taint on it. This point of view might have been interesting one time. It's the doctor's taint, but I found it very annoying in this case. I kept it family-friendly. I'm sorry, I'm no longer interested in (laughs) family-friendly. Fuck family-friendly. The characters are all ignorant of their surroundings, very opinionated, and for the most part totally delusional as to what is happening around them. It was a bit annoying, while I'm sure the the writer of the book was trying to be amusing. Trying to be amusing? Do not get me wrong, the book is amusing. He just said he was trying. And a very, very fast, short read. Usually that's your line. The book is so short that any problems can be overlooked simply because you will be done so quickly. Then why did you only give it four stars? And yet this review is not. We're still going at it. Yeah. One star was given by Stephen, saying... I didn't even like reading Bram Stoker's Dracula because of the journal format, which was completely inappropriate for a horror novel. Ah, blasphemy. How dare you. It's hard to capture excitement when someone is hurriedly jotting down their thoughts before they get killed by a vampire. I'll give them that. There was one point at which Ian was actually jotting his thoughts while chained up to the wall, and yeah. I was like, yeah, that's hard to visualize. Yeah. While the Romans is not at the horror suspense level, it definitely detracts from the normal Who narrative, having the story boil down to scraps of journal entries. Even more confounding, the narratives are found by Tacitus and Roman scholars. So the Doctor, who is cautious about leaving traces of himself behind lest the Time Lords track him down, just randomly leaves a pile of documents that proves his existence as a traveler of time and space. Seems a little suspect to me. Characterization was flawed. Was not impressed. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Goodness. Lighten up. I don't like the genre. Oh, says whiny my. boy 
goodness. Book in genre I do not enjoy was not enjoyable to me. Film at 11. <laughs> wow. We have drunk heavily of the wine. That's fine, because it is the Romans after all. And finally... Not that heavily. No, that's true. <laughs> not that. I, I would have been annoyed even if I was I made this recipe. It called for beef. I put in pork. It called for heavy cream. I put in soy milk. It's terrible. Never make this recipe. <laughs> finally. I don't know where we're going there. Braden Raymond gives it the full five stars, saying, What did I just read? I was told it would be funny. But I was told it was true. This is nothing like any Doctor Who story I've ever read before. Definitely one of my favorites. A new style as well for me, being told in letters and entries and diaries or journals. There were even moments where I had to stop myself and just laugh. Specifically when Nero compares himself to being a cat so he can touch Barbara, who is a mouse, dead, dying. So good. Yeah. So let's find out what you thought, Allison. We're giving numbers or just a broad Numbers. You know how this works now. So the highest rating, the lowest rating I've given is 1.5. I know. And that was, I thought, really high praise for it. Planet of the Giant Dicks. And, no, it was Promise More Giant than actually materialized. And uh, <laughs> the highest I've given is three for the escape. Uh, I would I would actually go with three again, even though this is completely different. Um, now for something completely In terms different. of style, yeah, I, I thought it... It was breezy wordplay, slapstick, you know, put all these different references in a blender. A couple of them were too belabor, but most of them were really fun. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was a perfect sort of June afternoon book. Okay. Yeah. And how many stars would you give out of five? Uh, uh, three. Three. So equal okay. to The Escape, even though it's yeah. uh, quite different. Okay. Yeah. I'd probably give it a three, too. Okay. It's right in the middle. It's a... Uh... It was fun. It was a quick read. It was a... Even if it was a labored read, having to really... I have a large vocabulary, but some of those words, it's like, I, okay, let me think about this. Use context clues. Um, but it was enjoyable. It was, um, it was a lot of fun to read it. Um, I did like you. I, it, I took it in two or three, uh, chunks to get through it. Um, yeah. Humorous. I like some of the characterizations. I agree with you that a lot of the secondary characters, the, the, not the companions and the doctor were more appealing. Even Nero was kind of like, just hilarious ridiculous ridiculous character mm -hmm. um yeah a lot of fun yeah okay how many i don't know how many stars three 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 that's what you said i don't know why i forgot that <clears throat> i actually probably would have gone higher just for the sort of entertaining wordplay um if it weren't for me being kicked out of the story repeatedly with the sort of funny brutality if that makes yeah, sense i get that i would have gone a little even less historically accurate, yeah. if that makes sense. There was a suicide joke at one point. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm not sure I'm on board with this one. However, yeah. Not that you can't do those, but either it should have been much darker overall or just omitted a few of those exactly. extra ones. But, but I don't want to be that guy who just didn't like the genre and so gave it a poor review because yeah. and he I'm, was having a bad day. I'm I not, really don't like that guy. <laughs> I'm not going to be that guy. <laughs> Because I would give this a 4.5 out of 5. Mm. Um, it's not perfect. Yeah, there are certain things that make this very less than perfect. Um, the fact that it does not cleave so closely to the televised story is not one of them. Because I, kind of, I have a fondness for the Romans. I have much more of a fondness for this book. Because it improves upon the humor. The, the humor in the Romans is somewhat forced. 
the televised version. Here, it's not forced. Donald Cotton has an immensely satisfying sense of humor, and all the changes that he makes here are well worth the uh, the admission price. Is he making fun of the original? I guess I haven't seen the original, but is it, he lampooning the episode? I think he's actually doing that. I think he's doing a spoof of a spoof, and it's well-intentioned, and it's a good one. The weird thing is, he's also spoofing a script written by somebody other than him, because he writes The Mythmakers and The Gunfighters, which we will get to. They're both heartless stories, and they're both played for laughs. And they are also hilarious. But he also improves upon his own scripts. This one, he's improving on somebody else's, and I think that's really the sign of a novelizer who is bringing something to the table. Now, Ian Martyr brought a lot to the table with Rescue. You can't imagine a Terrence Dix novelizing a book like this. No. Terrence Dix would have just said, oh, this happened, and this happened, and there were a few jokes, and blah, 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 blah. And lead. Yeah, and it would have been just let. It would have been just incredibly difficult to get through. This was difficult to get through only because it was dense with yeah. all that vocab. But when you look up the vocab and you realize the jokes that he's making, you're like, yeah. oh my god, I wish we could have this guy all the time. And even some of it, like, even if you don't know what the word is, a lot of times it's just, it's... The pretentiousness of itself is funny Exactly. Enough, it's but... pretentiousness, yeah. pretentiousness that way, but it's also just like, some of it is just how it sounds. Yeah. You don't have to know the word to know, just read it out loud. Yes. Read it out loud. It's that kind of wordplay. Yeah, there is a euphony to this book that there isn't usually to Doctor Who books. I would agree with those fans who said at the time, this isn't a Doctor Who book. Yeah, it's better than most Doctor Who books are. Much better. So, 4.5. There we are. <laughs> Alright, well, thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. So much of it. I apologize for the technical difficulties in the middle. We will figure them out. Next time we go back to the 60s for one of the three novelizations that were written in the 60s mm. with the Zarbi. That wasn't the name of the original story. Yeah, we'll, we'll get Zarbi. there. The with a Z. And it is the one Doctor Who book that refers to the title character as Doctor Who. All the way fucking through. Yeah. In the meantime... Even I know not to do that. I know. You should know by now. In the meantime, if you like what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Tardis Book Club Podcast, all in one word with those spaces. You can also visit our subreddit at www.reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtarget.bc. dwtargetbc. Sorry about that. Too much wine. <laughs> if you add a comment on Facebook or on our subreddit or even on SoundCloud or on YouTube... Just comment, period. Just comment anywhere. Text me. Email me. Write me. Snail mail me. This call plea me. is going to come back to bite you in unpleasant ways. I know it Anything, is. Anything? Really? Any if, comment? If you think there's something we've missed here, or you just want to tell us you like us and want to be interested in our next Target book giveaway, I may not actually be giving away that copy of the War Games anymore because somebody commented on Facebook early today and I may just send it off to them. You'll get something. The remainder of this bottle of wine is at least four tablespoons. No, no. Possibly five. I'm not giving up the wine. <laughs> also, feel free to watch our videos and give us a thumbs up and comment on YouTube. We are at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperdolic forward slash videos. As of, this, as of this recording, the rescue video is still not up because of copyright things. 
It will be up around the same time as the video for this one. Follow us on Twitter, we're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and intermittently on Podbean. If all else fails, email us at DWTargetBC at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. The restroom is that. I apologize for that crash down. Or or the vomitorium. The vomitorium. Roman times, yes, speaking of exploding toiletry. Uh.